this is my third attempt at recording a cold open. The first one, <laughs> the first one started off as howdy howdy hey, and I don't know what that was. And the second one just dragged on and on, which this episode probably will, because we're talking about the fundamental nature of existence. What is this? To exist, to be. So let's not waste time like I did in the first couple times trying to do this and get right into it. Welcome to this episode on ontology and welcome to the subjective space. If you've noticed a change in my demeanor this month, uh, <laughs> I've had a lot of coffee today. It's been a rough couple months, so I've been putting off recording this episode. Uh, <laughs> Since the last time I recorded, because every time I look at my notes, it feels like I've bit off more than I can chew, because ontology, it's a lot. It's, it's a big topic. So let's, let's start with the fundamentals. What is ontology? What are we talking about? Like I said, fundamental nature of existence. What is it to exist? What exists? What is existence? These are the kind of question. And if we look at Heideggerian philosophy, it's fundamentally a question of being. That's being with a capital B. And keep that in mind, because we're going to be returning to that idea a lot. Now, that would imply sort of a dichotomy between being and non-being, which would be a Quinean way to look at it, if, if you want to learn more about that. Because... Heidegger, I'm not even going to recommend being in time, uh, <laughs> because it's more that I'm using uh, what I understand from Heideggerian philosophy as a jumping off point for my own ideas. Ask anyone who majored in philosophy, <laughs> Martin Heidegger is not fun to read. He's just, like, almost purposefully difficult to read. But I will recommend uh, Quine's paper, uh, What Is There?, to sort of represent the physicalist side of things, that what exists is what exists. There is being and non-being, and that I, I think you'd very easily relate that to Wittgensteinian ontology, but as you'll probably pick up from the rest of this, uh, the way I approach ontology is in direct defiance of the idea that what we cannot speak of clearly, we must pass over in silence. Because I, I find that limiting. Because yes, there's an epistemological difficulty. There is a horizon to what we can understand as humans. But I think it's worthwhile to explore these ideas of, well, what can we speculate in human terms? And it's it's a bit like the, the hypercube, where we can only see the shadow of this fourth dimensional object. That's enough. That's a way for us to wrap our heads around something that is beyond our existence. And going back to this idea of being and non-being, uh, I, I would rather talk about extra materiality, things that go beyond being rather than simply not existing. So before we continue on, let's again go over some terms. Now, the Dasein, uh, what, what I'm bringing out of that concept, because I don't agree with this idea that being is fundamentally temporal, I think that the useful thing in the idea of the Dasein is this idea of the fundamental aspect of being, of existing as a, as a human, or in my uh, ontology, as, as a living thing, is this idea of being ontological and ontical. So, existing as an aspect of being, that's with a capital B, along with existing as an entity. And... <laughs> we will get more into this. I just kind of want to front load you with all this information because, <laughs> because I recognize that this is a confusing topic. 
it's a lot. So just having these things in mind, having where I'm coming from it, because again, the purpose of this podcast for me is both to have an outlet to talk about philosophy, but also to work on my own ideas. Like, this, is, this isn't a thesis. I'm not uh, dictating what is the exact nature of ontology, but rather exploring my own ideas and sharing them. Because for, for me, I find uh, a lot more clarity through explaining than just thinking on my own or learning or reading. You know, it's, it's a communal act for me, the, the nature of philosophy. Like I've, I've said in previous podcasts, I, I see it as a dialogue that's happening throughout time within our species. And one of the things that makes this so hard to talk about is that we, you, you don't really think about existing most of the time. You just kind of are. You just kind of exist. And that brings us to our uh, first proper topic, which is the ideas of being at hand and present at hand. Again, this is Heideggerian philosophy. Simply put, imagine that you're hammering a nail. Whenever you get, like, really into the swing of things, you forget that the hammer's there. You just are hammering something. But when you get a little overconfident and hit your thumb, it becomes a hammer again. Do you see? It, you only really notice it when things go wrong. Or for a more modern example, think about your, your phone. Like, uh, CJ the X did a fantastic video essay. It uh, has this example of having a dead phone and sort of experiencing the uh, vestigial nature of how our phones relate to us in modern life, where it's just sort of there. It's a part of you. And whenever you don't have it, you still reach for it because in your brain, you still have that access to the internet, to Google, Google Maps, whatever else. And you don't really notice that it has this sort of vestigial quality to it until you don't have it. And then you can feel that absence and it becomes present at hand. It is a phone rather than the thing where if I'm wondering what time it is, suddenly it's in my hand and I'm looking, well, probably not at the time, I'm probably <laughs> on Facebook going, what What was that? Oh yeah, I wanted to know the time. And then going back to checking the time. If I hope that's not just me, where I have to check the time twice because I get distracted looking at my phone. But the, the point here is that's something that is helpful to keep in mind. Like, if you want to get into that headspace where you can sort of distance yourself from existence and see it as a thing rather than just experiencing it passively, you could try something like uh, sitting down and playing a video game until you're into it. Like we were talking about last week, like we've talked about many times, this idea of immersion. So then you can break that immersion and feel that distance, that distance you feel walking out of a cinema. So with, with that in mind, we can go to what I think is the fundamental question of ontology. Like, with being in time, Heidegger starts with what is being, with that as a fundamental question as it leads to the horizon, as we were talking about previously, the absolute limit of what we can know when it comes to the ontological. And again, I'm more than comfortable speculating, because I, I think it's more important to have a working model and going from there than to have some perfect, theoretical, uh, absolutely explained thing, because... It's ontology. Like, yeah, there's a limit to what we can know. So why not swing for the fences and just see what makes sense and then continue speculating, working on it, examining it, 
and being willing to have a massive paradigm shift if we hit a snag and realize, oh, the thing I've been working on for a while is untenable. You know, philosophy with a hammer, right? So when we're asking this question of why is there something instead of nothing, it requires us to ask, what is nothing? Because a lot of... I've, I've seen so many people approach this question with the idea of, well, if there was nothing, then you couldn't be answer, asking this question. Or something pedantic like that. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're simplifying this idea of, of nothing, of being literally no thing, of just an absence. Like that, I mean, which does make sense. That's what, that's what the word means. But this idea of non-being, of nothingness, uh, within the this idea of the extra material that I want to put forward, I would like to think of it in terms of nothing with a capital N, of it being completely separate from our conventional idea of nothingness. Because it, it doesn't make sense to consider like nothingness to be like absolute nothingness. Because there is something, we know that. And it seems ludicrous to suggest that the universe would just spontaneously happen in a an absolute vacuum. So I, I think we need to reconsider our idea of nothing within the context of why is there something instead of nothing. From what else could being spring but pure possibility? Now this is when we get into this obstacle of trying to put this in understandable terms. Because the very nature of what I'm talking about is pure abstraction. It is it is really out there. It's difficult to see more than the shadows, the outlines of what pure possibility, pure abstraction, absolute abstraction could be. Now, I want to credit Randall Monroe for inspiring this analogy with XKCD, that's his webcomic, uh, the comic entitled Lego, that's number 659. I, I just want to properly cite this inspiration. So, imagine this as a box of Lego, or Lego bricks. It is everything and nothing. It's completely undefined. It could become something when it's organized, but it's completely unorganized. Now, this analogy seems to suggest that I think that there's some sort of component parts making up the universe, some absolute component parts that create being itself. And that's not the case, which we will get into later. But that gives us a handy answer to why is there something instead of nothing, because they're not truly distinct. Something is just an organized form of nothing. And remember, that's nothing with a capital N. That's our definition of nothing. So now I'd like to lead you through my thought process uh, from when I was originally working on this. Because I was left with a problem. Well, we have this abstraction, and then we have this, you know... <laughs> I'm thumping my table this very solid thing, this uh, aspect of being or manifest was sort of the word that I was using, or the difference between the extra material and the material. How do we connect those two things? Something that's so real and something that's so abstract. And it sort of hit me that if you were somehow able to look at our world, at the material from the point of view of this abstraction, we would be the abstract thing. So to return to that Lego analogy, if all you have is a box of Lego, then the idea of a spaceship is the abstraction. And what's in the middle there? What is the unifying thing in between them? The conceptual. Because the concept of the spaceship is going to remain conceptual 
regardless of if you have it in your hand or if you just have the box of Lego, right? So we have these three ideas separated into the extra material and the material. And really this separation, it's, it's kind of lopsided because we're coming at things from the material standpoint. If you have some knowledge of Kabbalah, you could consider this in terms of the four different worlds, because that's not, not a direct inspiration, but it's definitely in the realm of what I'm talking about. This question of why is there something instead of nothing? How do we get from abstraction to material reality? Now, I mentioned early on this idea of this pure possibility, this capital in nothingness being disorganized, of that being the main difference between something and nothing, organization. So let's sort of dip into uh, Hegelian dialectics here and consider things as uh, in the terms of definition through relation. And then, and then we will get back to this idea of how do we connect abstraction, conceptual, being. And also answer the question of what do I mean by something and nothing are just the same, just organized. Okay, so let's start off by talking about Hegelian dialectics. Now, I'm sort of using this as a jumping off point because Hegelian dialectics are more about ideas, which, which would be fitting, but <laughs> I feel like we might hit some fusion because uh, it might come off like I'm saying, oh, thesis is cat, antithesis is dog, and synthesis is fox. <laughs> but, but that's a... Um, not a bad primer for wrapping your head around it, because it is the pursuit of the absolute. You see, Hegel was going off of uh, Kant's critique of pure reason. He very much disagreed with the idea of the noumena, this uh, world of truth that's inaccessible to us. Or the you know, critique is, well, what's, what's the point of this philosophical concept? It's this thing off in the distance that we can't interact with, we can't prove. Like, no, Hegel says the the absolute. What's, what's there is there. We, we don't have to worry ourselves about the problems of uh, the intuition and understanding and all that. Well, those are definitely helpful terms, but this idea that uh, all we have access to is phenomena. But the important thing about absolute and how we come to that knowledge is that it is dialectical, it is progressive in the sense that <laughs> for, for our example of cat, dog, fox, you start off with a cat and it is very much not a dog. So, so that is the thesis and antithesis. And what we're trying to learn here is the qualities of cat which are reflected in its opposite in the absence of cat that is dog. You see why this is not a great, not a great example, but it's, it's fun. We end up with Fox with qualities of both, which brings us to a closer understanding of either. Because uh, at, at this point, the process would start again. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and then the synthesis becomes the new thesis. And the main thing that I want to draw from this idea is the concept of the other in the subject. This process of defining something based on how it relates to other things. So, let's move on from dialectics straight into this idea of definition by relation. For example, think of a horse. How big is a horse? And I'm, I'm talking about a horse in a vacuum, not a horse in a field. I, <laughs> what's the size 
of a horse that doesn't have anything else around it. The horse is the only thing in existence. I would argue it doesn't really have a size, because what are you comparing to? Even if you say, well, the horse is uh, a meter tall, that's just a number that's meaningless if it's not a uh, point of comparison with other things. And we, we were talking about this in, oh gosh, I can't remember which episode, but it was starting off with the idea of how big is the sun. It is far beyond our comprehension. All we have is a number, because there's nothing we can really compare it to at that scale. Now, that's human understanding. What I'm talking about here is contrast. That there can't be a uh, black if there's not a white. There can't be a big if there's not a small. And if we put this in a more complex form, we can see, like, my microphone in front of me being defined by its relationship to everything else in the universe in terms of size, shape, color, how it works, where it is. So that, that would be this idea placed in the manifest in capital B, being. And we will get more into that later. So let's just stick with the extra material, the abstract and the conceptual for now. Because if we view the uh, absolute abstract, pure potential, this uh, capital N nothing, as being almost a, a catch-all for anything that could be any way that any two things could re relate, but of course on a much more abstract scale. This is why I, I sort of preface this episode by saying... There's, there's an element of speculation into this, and sort of a perquisite of understanding that this isn't something that is going to be easy to talk about clearly. Because at this level of abstraction, we're talking about, for example, the possibility that causality exists, or the minutia of rules of physics or mathematics... Again, uh, by its very nature, it is uh, inconceivable in its true essence, especially given the fact that it is also highly contradictory. That is why it would be capital N nothing. That's why there's not a different term in my uh, ontology, because it's completely without organization or definition things both are and are not. So how do we conceptualize this abstraction becoming being? And here we get to the answer of <laughs> why is there something instead of nothing? And the explanation of that answer being well, they're the same thing. Is that if you have this, this vast, endless swath of possibility inherently there are possible sets. Even more abstract than, uh, well, physics could fit together in this way, these qualities of a uh, functioning universe or capital B being could be uh, found in a set, but the possibility that that set could be created. Uh, this might be easier to think of in terms of numbers, because it's, 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 <laughs> you can wrap your head around the idea of the infinity of numbers much more than the infinity of possibility in terms of the ontological. So, say that abstraction can be represented by the totality of integers. We're going beyond integers. Imaginary numbers, negative numbers fractions, whatever, however you want to fill out 
this idea of every single possible number is represented by absolute abstraction, this pure possibility, this capital N nothing. So in this, there lies the possible set of one, two, three. Now that's inherent in the existence of this infinite amount of numbers. The only difference is the organization. So we could have a conceptual system being that that set drawn out of the uh, infinite abstract that contains all possibilities within parameters. Now, of course, an implied set wouldn't automatically lead to a material, manifest, uh, existent being, capital B, being, and that will bring us back to this idea of the ex-material and the material. Because so far, we've been talking about the extra-material, the abstract and the conceptual. And to make things easier for our discussion, let's let's make a distinction between uh, manifest of... See, I'm, I'm moving a paper around. Between that stuff versus what we could, for the time being, call the theoretical material. Because I don't expect you to <laughs> just accept oh, it goes from infinity, those could possibly be sorted, and we could get more specific layers of blah 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 blah. We're about to get into that. But just bear with me for a second. Really, what this comes down to is an increasing specificity of variables. Within the conceptual, we can get the variables, the outline of these ideas. And then as we close in on this theoretical material and remember this is not this is not a final term it's just a placeholder to make this part of the discussion easier as we close in to that theoretical material the variables would be filled in so say for the sake of example that uh that horse let's take him out of uh, vacuum isolation and say that the concept of a horse exists within this system, within this set that has been sort of implied by the existence of all of their numbers, the potential for those to be organized into <laughs> the concept of horse. Or I, I shouldn't be using the number example. I guess we'll say that in the abstract there is horse and not horse and within this system this conceptual system of possibility there is horse and on the the high end of the conceptual scale uh if i'm i'm going to reference kabbalah again because it's just really useful for talking about ontology surprisingly useful uh if you care to research more there the uh abstraction would be messiah and this high-end conceptual that horse can exist as a possibility would be bria now on the low end of conceptuality getting closer to this theoretical manifest would be yet zero where things start to take form where there are limits on what variables are available to that horse maybe a a range of sizes a range of colors that coat its coat could be so to nod at quine uh this would be where wyman's blue donkey would live or where wyman's blue donkey would be cut out of the picture actually excuse me there so in this stage we've determined well there, there there aren't any blue horses but they could be white, brown, uh, a mixture of the two. I don't know a lot about horses. I keep using examples of things I don't know a lot about. You know, I gotta get this done. I'm not gonna reflect on that. But then we get to this placeholder material manifest plane where there is horse and it is a certain size, a certain color, 
it has a certain placement in the uh, spatio-temporal plane. And that is the, the end line regarding variables. That is the, the absolute specificity within the system. But that's not really saying much for why there's something instead of nothing, because we, we've only talked about the nothing, the capital N nothing, the extra material. We have to look more deeply at the material, at being, capital B, being at this point. I'm very excited, because this is when it really starts coming together. And a uh, fun story, if, if you ever want to get into developing your own uh, ontological system, if you, if, if you get to a point where you start questioning your sanity, uh, you're going in the right direction. Like, I went, I went through a phase where I'd pick up random things and be like, this is just nothingness relating to itself. Don't you understand? And then, then I get a better grip on my ideas. I was like, okay, no, this is actually a sensible philosophy, not just some sort of, uh, I don't know, warning sign. But now, in that, in this uh, examining of the material, of pushing aside this placeholder theoretical material, we can get into being, but split up into generalized being and localized being. Alright, so here's where the rubber meets the road. Because uh, the, the relations I've been talking about have been conceptual, but now we've moved into the material realm, into being. And this relation is special because it's spatio-temporal. And this is generalized being. And we'll get into that distinction soon. But first, let's talk about spatio-temporal, space-time. So if you're looking at space and time from a physics perspective, they're all just variables. They're just... There's just one of them that goes off in a funky direction, but on paper, they're all the same. So, what we end up with here, with generalized being, with the possibility for spatio-temporal relations, is capital E Entity. And that is the real theoretical material. Anyway, these elements of this uh, conceptual system can be organized in space and time relative to each other. They exist theoretically within this capital E entity. They're not fully defined, and you might even think of them as illusory if you want to come at it from a Buddhist perspective. But it, it's much more closer to uh, modal realism, as we were talking about last week. This idea that the concept of a real reality is arbitrary. The way I picture it is that the extra material is like this <laughs> this green goop. That that's, that's the uh, absolute abstraction is this, this green goop with these little circular systems of uh, conceptual possibilities inside of them with their limits drawn relative to entity being generalized being. So like if you want to see uh, if we want to think of conceptual systems as clear plastic balls within this this green goop of the, the <laughs> this is not making it clear is it i'm just going power ahead if we want to imagine conceptual systems as uh clear plastic balls within this green goop of the abstract generalized being would be the plastic itself the the limits while entity would be what is theoretically inside. And I say theoretically uh, because the reason I'm saying singular capital E entity as we will go into more depth in 
just a couple minutes is because the component parts of this entity don't really exist. And furthermore, this entity is not fully defined. It's sort of a catch-all for every possible combination of spatial-temporal relationships existing within generalized being. Now, the relation that would give this uh, spatial-temporal possibility vis-a-vis uh, capital E entity, what would give it definition would be a further relation of perception. And this comes down to the subject, which I'm going to later explain as localized being, perceiving entity from a particular spatial-temporal standpoint and therefore having an actual manifest understanding of entity as entities. So to put that in practical terms, this microphone in front of me, without me perceiving it as a microphone, as an object, it's just a part of the wider universe. Generalized being doesn't make distinctions. The universe just kind of is. But we impose this idea of objects, of component parts of entity through our perception. And this goes all the way down. Like, if, if you look closer, you'll see molecules, atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons, and then quarks, larks, whatever they're doing in, in quantum physics. And then if you look deeper, there's uh, possibly strings. I do not understand string theory. But what I would say is that the limit of these uh, component parts would be epistemological rather than absolute. When we say we found the fundamental component part of the universe, what we've really found is the smallest component part of the universe that we're able to observe. Consider the mantis shrimp. We know it can see colors we cannot. That's an unknown we can detect. Imagine the ones we can't. Because if the smallest part of the the smallest component part in our existence has further component parts that are, say, fourth dimensional, that is beyond our capabilities of observation. So I guess this is a <laughs> complete subversion of the hardline physicalists that say, oh, there's, there's no such thing as a table, it's just atoms arranged as a table. I'm, I'm considering it from the opposite direction of, well, there's, yeah, there's no table, but there's no atoms. We're imposing these component parts by looking deeper. We're imposing this table as being a component part of this room, this room being a component part of the city I live in, being a component part of the earth, being a component part of the universe. It's just the universe. It's just entity. This definition and consistency that we see is based on our perception that we are consistently observing it. And that brings us to localized being and the Dasein, or my interpretation of the Dasein. And again, I'm not trying to dip too far into Heideggerian philosophy. What I'm really interested in is the concept of the Dasein, this fundamental aspect of existing as a human, of what we are fundamentally, as being both ontical and ontological being an aspect of capital B being, but also an entity. And there's where the localized aspect of this comes from. Because while generalized being is defined by the spatio-temporal relation, localized being is defined by the perceptive relation. Localized 
in an entity within a certain space. And you may be asking, well, doesn't this undermine the idea that there aren't entities if the nature of localized being is that it's localized within an entity? And again, the uh, nature of my body being an entity is imposed by my perception. If I were to just die right right now, which if you're listening to this has not happened, unless it was published posthumously. But that's, <laughs> that's not the point, not remotely the point. If I cease to perceive, then my corpse just becomes another part of the universe. And by that I mean it just becomes the universe. It stops being distinct because I am no longer able to perceive it as distinct. And here's another way that this concept of localized being differs from the Dasein. The Dasein is very much uh, anthropocentric. It is an aspect of being human. While localized being, it's uh, that's just life. It's just something that's able to perceive. With the um, nature of that perception being filtered through the form in which that being is localized. So let's let's take it from the top and see if we can answer this question of why is there something instead of nothing. Obviously, starting with this capital N, nothing. So you have pure possibility, absolute abstraction, with theoretical elements that could theoretically be organized into sets. And these sets would make up what we are calling a conceptual system, which would be a limited collection of possible relations and variables. Now, these variables would have potential definitions attached to them, and those potential definitions would have the potential to... I'm saying potential too much. These conceptuals, let's call them, have the possibility to be related spatiotemporally, which brings us into generalized being and capital E entity, as you could see it as a collection of cross-sections of existence, as the atomically uh, temporal spatial relations, or an atomically temporal, so the, the smallest amount of time, cross-section of spatial relations. But these aren't definite, they're not manifest material in the way we would think of material, and they're not distinct entities, what they are is a collection of relations. So I'm not talking about uh, a cross-section of time where my microphone is potentially like 30 centimeters from my glass of water. What I mean is that the bundle of relations which might make up my microphone has an added relation, an added possible relation to something, to a a bundle of relations that could make up my glass of water. And they are now linked uh, spatially, as, as well as temporally in the sense that I've moved my glass of water and that space relationship has changed and that change has a temporal uh, aspect to its relation. And finally, finally this brings us to localized being, which gives us entities proper. In a sense, it's being relating to itself or more so being relating to entity capital E entity from within an aspect of that entity. So why is there something instead of nothing? Because the relation of perception 
gives the appearance that there is something instead of nothing. You see, they're the same. It's that what we are experiencing as a localized aspect of capital B being is a very specific, highly organized, and defined arrangement of that capital in nothing. Now, let's go back and consider the idea of intersubjectivity within this ontological framework. So, this shared uh, intersubjective reality is based upon the agreement of our perception of capital E entity. That is to say, I as a uh, subject, let's say, as a localized being, as a perceiver, experience, entity, and existence spatio-temporally. And the common understanding I find with other localized beings I can communicate with forms this consistent conception of reality. Now, of course, this raises questions about timelines and causality, which I think we can understand more clearly by examining the idea of uh, free will in a deterministic universe. So, let's start with the question posed by the great philosopher David Byrne. How did I get here? So if we disassociate ourselves from this idea of timelines and think more in those cross-sections of entity I was talking about earlier, if I look back into the past, I see a chain of causality, a chain of perception. Because I, as, as a localized being, I am locked into this, uh, you know, existing within a definite spatial-temporal series of relations. But that's not the case for generalized being. Again, entity to generalized being is theoretical. So our entire lives, every life we could possibly live, is contained within generalized being. There's just a certain chain of history, causality, life, that we see that we perceive as localized beings. So what does this mean? We can accept the arguments for a deterministic universe while having our cake and eating it too of this free will that it's part of the human experience. You can feel it. Like that's that's always been the the hang-up on determinism for me, is that's just not the experience of being human. So given this relation between generalized being and localized being, and the nature of generalized being as unbound by spatio-temporal definite, we can say that our lives are both determined and chosen. So what this might look like from our perspective is me sitting here uh, <laughs> recording a podcast. Let, let's say that that's been determined by, and, and this is ridiculous, but I, I'm just trying to simplify here. It's been determined by the position of a rock at point A instead of point B. Now, if we were solely a Dasein, then that rock already was there. It always was there. But as a localized aspect of being, it is philosophically justifiable that the choices I experienced and made that led me up to this point in my human life led to the perception of this chain of causality where the rock was in point A instead of point B. And I'm, I'm not talking about manifesting here. Not in the way, you know, the 
woo-woo spiritualist talk about it. I can't choose to be on the moon right now and have the universe shift around me to achieve that desire. What I'm putting forward is that my acting in a particular way is copacetic with the chain of causality with uh, which I am perceiving. And and let me let me make this clear because this obviously brings up the question of well what about other versions of me versions of me living in a uh, different localized being a different aspect of entity where instead I'm running the Iditarod instead of recording a podcast well that's the thing there's no self there's just the subject just the perception so if I were to somehow encounter this other me it wouldn't be me because we have different locuses of perception and this is where the intersubjective comes heavily into play because it's easy to follow from that oh well so you're saying that every time I see my uh, teacher in the morning it's not the same teacher because maybe the one I interacted with yesterday made a different choice or something or another and it's not a real distinction in the same way mortal realists argue that there's not a real reality that is a, just a meaningless uh, way to characterize what we're talking about what matters is not the personal identity but the intersubjective reality that we are sharing a common understanding of both the moment and how we got there or not, not even necessarily that so we can we can simplify and say that we're sharing that moment and that's the the, the true nature of the intersubjective reality Oof. okay it's 6 a.m and thank you for joining me on this uh executive dysfunction has not made it easy to get this one done especially since it's not a quick and easy topic to go through but here we are at the end we made it i made it uh I'd, I'd like to give a, a special thank you to, I think I have like six regular listeners at this point, as I, I know that there were like six downloads the first day of uh, the last podcast release, which was fun to see, and uh, hopefully I'll get started on the next episode a bit sooner, and uh, in in the meantime... I'm planning on uh, streaming at some point. There will not be a schedule. Because really what I want out of it is to have a camera on me when I'm supposed to be writing to make sure I don't just watch YouTube videos and look at memes. That's that's one of the unspoken tragedies of ADHD where I'm fighting for my life to do the thing I want to do and enjoy doing but it just looks like I'm spending eight hours looking at funny cat pictures but we got through it and I'll, I'll talk to you next month and uh thank you for listening to this episode on ontology and thank you for listening to the subjective space